You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to our very special and completely unplanned two-part episode. If you hadn't listened to the first episode that released at the usual time on Tuesday, we're in the middle of talking about interesting military innovations. You don't strictly have to listen to the first episode, but, you know, I think you'll really like it. But on with the show. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Some civilian contributions turned out better than others. In late 1917, German U-boat technology was devastatingly successful. Fully one-fifth of Britain's merchant ships, which ferried supplies to the British Isles, had been sunk in the past year. The Kaiser had declared unrestricted submarine warfare, promising to torpedo any ship that came within the war zone. Even a hospital ship was torpedoed. The Allies needed a way to hide their ships, but you can't simply paint them ocean blue and hope the Germans don't notice. From the early stages of the war, artists, naturalists, and inventors showered the offices of the U.S. and British Royal Navy with largely impractical suggestions to make the ships invisible. Cover them in mirrors, disguise them as giant whales, drape them in canvas to make them look like clouds, one scheme to disguise a ship as an island, complete with trees, was actually tested in the field. It didn't get very far before the wind picked up and the canvas covering blew off. If you can't paint a ship in a way that makes it less conspicuous, what happens if you paint it more conspicuously? Artist Norman Wilkinson's innovation, Dazzle Camouflage, didn't hide the vessel, but effectively hid the vessel's intent. Since it was impossible to paint a ship so that she could not be seen by a submarine, the extreme opposite was the answer. In other words, paint her not for low visibility, but in such a way as to break up her form and thus confuse a submarine officer as to the course on which she is heading. In order for a U-boat gunner to hit his target in the torpedo's range of 300 to 1900 meters, he had to accurately predict where the target would be at the time of the impact, after looking through the periscope as briefly as possible to avoid the periscope being noticed. Typical U-boats could carry only 12 expensive torpedoes at a time, so the gunner had to get it right the first time. Wilkinson's idea was to dazzle the gunner so that he would either lack the confidence to take the shot or spoil it if he did. A deviation of as little as 8 degrees could mean a miss. Even if the torpedo didn't miss completely, it would avoid hitting vital parts of the ship. Dazzle camouflage used broad swaths of contrasting colors, black and white, green and mauve, orange and blue, 
in geometric shapes and curves to make it difficult to determine the ship's actual shape, size, and direction. Curves painted across the side of the ship could create a false bow wave, for example, making the ship seem smaller or imply that it was heading in a different direction. Patterns disrupting the line of the bow or stern could make it hard to tell the back from the front, where the ship actually ended, or whether it was one vessel or two. Angled stripes on the smokestack could make it seem like the ship was facing in the opposite direction. The system did have its limitations. It could only be applied to ships that would be targeted by periscopes, because it worked best when seen from the low viewpoint of a U-boat gunner. It did precious little against aircraft, too. American camouflage artist and author Roy Behrens said, It's counterintuitive. People can't really believe that you could interfere with the visibility of something by making it highly visible, but they don't understand how the human eye works, that something needs to stand out from the background and hold together as an integral figure. Dazzle paint is also part of a design to help get supplies to people in inaccessible areas after a disaster. The Dazzle Box was the winner of the 2018 3M Disruptive Design Challenge, a contest for college engineering students to design an easy-to-transport, resilient, reusable, watertight box that could be used to deliver medical supplies in emergency situations. Prototypes were tested by first dropping them from a 150-foot or 46-meter-high crane. The winning shape is a truncated octahedron, which can roll but stacks tightly. It's made from polycarbonate panels taped together that can be easily replaced if one breaks. It's lined with foam that not only protects the contents, but people can use to sleep on or even cut up and use as sponges. The Dazzle Box is so named because it's covered with garish and clashing colors and shapes, which ensures it won't blend in with the environment and get lost after it's dropped. Flashing LEDs on the panels help with that too. Admittedly, it's only tangentially related to today's overall topic, but you've got to love good design. Typically, any given person in a conflict is fighting for one side. On rare occasions, you may have a deserter, a defector, or a conscript who find themselves fighting for a second faction. One unlucky Korean man, Yang Kyung-yong, found himself fighting under at least three different banners, Japan, Germany, and Russia, before being captured by U.S. troops. Living in Japan-controlled Manchuria when the war began, Yang was drafted into the Japanese army in 1938. He fought for them for a year before the Battle of Kalkingal, where he was captured by the Soviet Red Army and sent to a labor camp. Because of the manpower shortages faced by the Soviets in their fight against Nazi Germany, he was press-ganged into fighting in the Red Army, along with thousands of other prisoners. After another year-long stint in a foreign military, he was once again captured, this time by the Germans at the Battle of Kharkov. Yang's story would have ended here if the Nazis weren't in the habit of allowing prisoners they didn't execute to volunteer to serve in the Wehrmacht following their capture. As a result of this practice, Yang was conscripted to fight in a German Ost Battalion. Ost Battalions were small battalions of men composed of volunteers from the numerous regions of Europe that Nazi Germany controlled. 
These were folded into larger units of German soldiers to serve as shock troops and backup to more experienced Wehrmacht battalions. After being conscripted to fight for the Third Reich, Yang was sent to help defend the Cotentin Peninsula in France shortly before D-Day. When D-Day arrived and Allied troops successfully stormed the beaches, Yang was among a handful of soldiers captured by the United States 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Initially, it was reported by Lieutenant Robert Brewer that they had captured, quote, four Asians in German uniforms. While this was technically true, they believed the four men to be Japanese, when in reality the other three were from Turkestan. Unable to communicate effectively because he did not speak English or German, Yang was sent to yet another POW camp, this time in Britain, where he remained until the end of the war. When World War II ended, Yang chose not to return home, but instead emigrated to the United States where he settled in Illinois and lived quietly until his death in 1992. From the sad tale of an unwilling man with three armies to an RAF pilot with zero legs, Douglas Batter had two whole legs, as most of us do, when he enlisted in the Royal Air Force in 1928. While not unskilled, Batter was something of a braggadocio, showing off and trying to one-up his fellow airmen. That attitude would cost him dearly at age 21, when he disobeyed orders forbidding aerial acrobatics in his Bristol Bulldog. Flying his biplane upside down at a low altitude, he crashed his plane, mangling both legs so badly that they had to be amputated, one below the knee and the other just above. He had to learn to walk again on artificial legs, and doctors weren't hopeful that he'd ever be able to walk without a cane, let alone fly. His pig-headedness served him for the better this time, as he taught himself to drive a race car, play golf and tennis, and even dance on his new legs. At the outbreak of World War II, after repeated requests and refusals to rejoin the RAF as a pilot, Bader was allowed to attend a flying school as a test of his abilities. He passed. He was made pilot of a Spitfire and sent on non-combat patrol and escort missions. Eventually, he did get to engage the enemy when he was assigned to air support at Dunkirk, protecting the British Navy and the evacuation of the army. He engaged German planes in dogfights and discovered that his amputations were actually an advantage. Pilots lose consciousness when high G-forces push the blood in their bodies down to their feet and legs, away from their brains. Bader's legs stopped halfway, making him less likely to black out during strenuous maneuvers. He was promoted to leader of a demoralized Canadian squadron, who were not at all happy to be led by a double amputee after already sustaining heavy casualties. Bader was able not only to prove himself to his men, but to rally them. They fought in the Battle of Britain and took down 12 enemy planes. By the end of the war, they had shot down 55 more. In 1941, Bader was promoted out of the squadron to wing commander, leading bomber escort runs in his Spitfire. He had racked up 20 enemy takedowns before August 8th, when he attacked a squad of 12 planes and was either shot down or his plane collided with another, no one's quite sure. He tried to bail out, but one prosthetic leg became entangled with the pedals. He managed to escape without it and get clear of the crash, but was captured by German ground troops. 
The German pilots actually admired Bader and contacted British authorities to ask that a replacement leg be airdropped to the hospital where he was being held prisoner. Bader escaped the hospital, but was captured and moved to a POW camp, Stalag Luft III. He continued to try to escape. The guards threatened to take his artificial legs if he didn't knock it off. Bader would spend the next year escaping from and being transferred around to different POW camps before eventually being liberated by American troops. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. No amount of olive drab can dull some colorful characters. Born to a British family in Hong Kong in 1906, Jack Churchill, no relation to Prime Minister Winston, is better remembered, as YouTube personality Chris Joel described, that nutter who tried to fight World War II with a claymore. Not a claymore mine, a two-handed Scottish sword. Churchill spent his first few years in the army riding his motorcycle across the Indian subcontinent and learning to play the bagpipes, despite not being the slightest bit Scottish. He retired from the military after 10 years and worked as a newspaper editor, male model, and movie extra, all while honing his skills in archery. He re-enlisted in 1940 and found himself and his troops trying to reinforce the ill-fated Maginot Line. He not only refused to give ground, but launched small-scale guerrilla raids and surprise attacks on German positions and supply depots. Riding his trusty motorcycle and armed only with a longbow and a broadsword, he would assault the Germans, catching them completely off guard. It's what the experts call the element of surprise. When asked by a fellow officer why Churchill insisted on carrying the sword, he responded, Any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly dressed. Despite being shot in the neck by a German machine gun, Mad Jack Churchill battled through the Dunkirk campaign, at one point even winning the military cross for bravery when he rescued a wounded soldier from a German ambush. Speaking of special commendations, we got another great review on our Facebook page. 
This one from our friend Vera Wild, who says, I listen to dozens of podcasts. However, I can count on one hand the ones that I listen to immediately as soon as an episode is available. Your Brain on Facts is on that list. Moxie's soothing tones, the flow of mood and information, and of course the abundance of facts, have made this comfort listening, and one that I'm sure some of my friends would like me to stop talking up. And I will, as soon as they start listening, because they're going to love it, and so will you. Vera, as soon as I make this a marketable brand, I am hiring you for sales. And remember, if you'd like to leave your honest thoughts about Your Brain on Facts, you can do so at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, in a direct message at instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, or through the Apple Podcast app. And I underscore honest thoughts. I really don't like it when a podcast host says, leave us a five-star review. Leave however many stars you feel are appropriate. And if it's five, I hope it's because I earned them. But back to Mad Jack. After Dunkirk, Jack returned to England and promptly signed up to be a member of a newfangled unit called the Commandos. Churchill was responsible for taking out the artillery batteries on Malloy Island. As the landing craft went, he belted out the March of the Cameron Men on the bagpipes. When the assault ramp swung open, he fearlessly waded through knee-deep water out at the head of his men with his trusty blade aloft, screaming commando at the top of his lungs. Two hours later, British High Command received a telegram from the front. Malloy battery and island captured, casualty slight, demolition in progress, Churchill. His squad was charged with taking out another artillery battery, this one garrisoned by a force much larger than their own. In the middle of the night, he had his men charge the town from all sides, screaming as loudly as possible. The Germans were confused and surprised, and the 50 men of Number 2 Commando took 136 prisoners and inflicted an unknown number of casualties. But that's nothing compared to the night that he single-handedly took 42 German prisoners and captured a mortar crew using only his broadsword. Like something out of a bad grindhouse action movie, our hero simply grabbed a patrol guard as a human shield and went from sentry post to sentry post, shoving his sword in the guards' faces until they surrendered. Churchill continued to lead his men in action against the German forces in Yugoslavia, but was eventually captured by the enemy and taken off to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. It would take more than a concentration camp to hold Mad Jack Churchill. He escaped by crawling under barbed wire and through an abandoned drain. He was later recaptured while walking toward the Baltic coast and shipped off to a prison camp in Austria. This too would prove to be insufficient. He marched 150 miles through the treacherous terrain of the Alps until he ran across a U.S. armored column and was sent back to England. Unfortunately for him, the war was pretty much over at that point. If it weren't for those damn Yanks, he groused, we could have kept the war going another ten years. Mad Jack Churchill was far from the only man who was ready for a long war. For one man, World War II lasted 35 years. In 1944, Lieutenant Hiru Onoda was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on U.S. forces in the area. 
he managed to evade capture when Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered, Anada and a few others hid in the jungle, dismissing attempts to tell them that the war was over. For 29 years, he survived by foraging or stealing from local farms. He also killed as many as 30 people that he took for enemy soldiers coming after him. One of his companions decided to risk the dishonor of abandoning his duty in 1950 and return to Japan. One died later that year. The third and final was killed when he fired on Philippine troops in 1972. Anada was persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974. But he would not surrender to anyone other than the commanding officer who had ordered him to the island. Until then, Anada would explain later, he believed attempts to persuade him to leave were a plot concocted by the pro-U.S. government in Tokyo. His former commanding officer traveled to Lubang to see him and tell him he was relieved of duty. Onada, dressed in his 30-year-old uniform that was still in good condition, wept as he agreed to lay down his well-maintained service rifle. Every Japanese soldier was prepared for death but as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die, Anada told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I had to follow my orders as I was a soldier. He was later pardoned for the killings by then-Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos. Anada returned to Japan in March of the same year, but after struggling to adapt to life in his changed homeland, he emigrated to Brazil in 1975 to become a farmer and returned to Japan in 1984 to open nature camps for children, teaching them the survival skills that he had learned on the island. Hiru Onada, the man who fought World War II for 35 years, died quietly of heart failure in 2014 at the age of 91. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I hope you enjoyed our first ever, albeit unplanned, two-part episode. Is this a schedule you'd like to see us keep up? Do you prefer one 40-minute episode or two 20-minute episodes? Pop over to our social media and let us know. Because these just get longer and longer the more of them I do. But thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word slather. Slather. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.